Welcome to the last Oktoberfest podcast from Natural and Wild. Today I'm revealing the creepy cultish story of a double murder that happened in my family in 1869. There are stories you don't hear people tell that often. Stories that generate stereotypes that are not exactly favorable or attractive. This is one of them. It's the kind of story that horror movies are made from. But tonight marks All Hallows Eve. I'm feeling generous, and so I give you the recorded, uploaded onto the internet forever recount of a dark time in my hometown and in my family. This is Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. I'm a storyteller, a nature lover, and I like making the world romantic, even darkly so. It's Halloween Eve. The veil between the worlds is down. And I already have a nice fire going this morning and candles lit in my pumpkins out on the old front porch. Are you ready for a tale of murder driven by old religion? Let's get on with it. My family spreads out all over Wilkes, back into Tennessee, all the way up and through the backwoods of Kentucky and Virginia. We're an old, very big family, and we even tried seceding from the United States at one point by forming the town of Franklin, Tennessee, but that was a failed attempt. And another story. I'm sure a lot of my local listeners are somehow related to me, and this might stir up some questions and a few nightmares. We have quite a crew down the bloodline. Musicians, storytellers, moonshiners, and one type people don't normally associate with entertainment. But you really should, because they're really the most talented in the art of charisma. And that's the preachers. Old school preachers are some of the most enticing storytellers and captivating people around the Appalachians. And back in the 17 and 1800s, well, they knew how to draw a crowd, as well as stir up some cult-driven insanity. This was the second wave of the Great Awakening, which was a religious revival outbreak that had a profound effect on religion in the foothills and the mountains of Appalachia. It broke down into primarily the Methodist, Presbyterian, and Baptist sectors of worship in the old foothills and southern Appalachian Mountains. And this is where my tale starts, with a great big old school revival. The Dover Baptist Church, a church that had been around since May of 1833, was having a hardcore revival meeting in the woods in the fall of 1868, a beautiful time up in the mountains of Alexander County, North Carolina. The red and yellow leaves were floating and falling to the ground, the air crispy and the nearby water making everything smell so clean. Now these revivals were almost always held near a waterway, whether it was a set of falls, a creek, a river, any place really where you can have your body and soul dipped into God's waters and cleansed of sin and bad deeds. This became the mark of Baptist faith, water baptism. Water was a miracle elixir. 
And it's easy to understand why if you live near these clean crystal spring heads here in the mountains of western North Carolina. There's something about the rushing rapids here that give you this incredible sense of healing and strength. The water talks to you. Praying by these waters makes miracles happen. They're akin to the fountain of youth in the Garden of Eden of Appalachia. So the Dover Church was having its revival event. People were coming in and setting up places to camp and sleep. Most of these older revivals were held outside in the mountains, and the emotions between people rose high and hot. What helped this religion fever along was the fact that the revival at Dover Church wasn't feeding its attendees very much food, and they were going without a lot of sleep. There was constant preaching that would begin at 9 in the morning and go to 10 p.m., with tiny breaks for eating something rather quickly. Most people didn't sleep much at night, and it would start over again in the morning. And this lasted for nine days and nights. One family who attended was a small branch of my ancestors, the ones who bore the woman who had Columbus and Nora McGee, the two people who built this old house I stay in over the summer now. Columbus was a moonshiner. I'm sure Nora was running the liquor too, as she had a very nice car and only a minor teaching job, and they were both strangely loved all over the county. But back to the revival. It was a sect of family named the Lands, L-A-N-D-S. The Lands, James and his wife Jane, went with their children to this revival, foreseen by a preacher named D. Wilborn. Deep religious fever struck the people there in the middle of the woods. Mr. Wilborn was as charming as ever, and the lands, who were not very educated and were paranoid people to begin with, took to this preaching like nobody else there. When they finally made their way back home, probably walking as they were extremely poor and didn't have the means to travel easily, their behavior began twisting and changing over the course of the next six months. In February of 1869, the daughter's body would be put on a pyre of wood and set on fire. After the family began to believe she was possessed, the legend being that her heart was the only thing that wouldn't burn. Afterwards, one of the sons would ask his father why they were in trouble, to which the father, James Land, would say to him, "'Because your mother made you kill your sister.'" In response to this revelation, The son choked his mother to death in the jail cell while James held her hands behind her back. But like I said, I got my hands on the documentation of the court follow-up in the original newspaper article when the case of murder was tried. I was able to get more details of the story. This came from a dear friend of mine who went out of her way to come by these papers, and I thank her very much for sending them to me. And without further ado, I'm going to read that to you now. Title on the original story and all. The Remarkable Case of Religious Aberration in North Carolina, May 17, 1869. On the 13th, 14th, and 15th of May, 1869, 
in the Superior Court of Caldwell County, North Carolina, before Honorable Judge Mitchell. Eli Land, Nimrod Land, and James Land were tried for the murder of Sarah Land, the daughter of James Land and sister of Eli and Nimrod. The following is a summary of the evidence. The Land family consisted of James, a man apparently 50 years of age, his wife Jane, his sons Eli and Nimrod, aged 16 and 17, his daughters Sarah and Polly, other than the boys and two children of tender years. They were very poor, living on rented land in a log cabin at the base of Cox's Knob of the Brushy Mountains, Alexander County, North Carolina. They were remarkably quiet, peaceable, honest, and industrious people, and were noted for their kindly affection towards one another. The wife and mother, Jane, a woman of very limited education, but of strong will and fervent passions, had acquired a controlling influence over her husband that had become intensified by the exercises and manifestations that came about at a protracted meeting held at Dover Church in the neighborhood last August, where for nine days and nights from 9 a.m. to 10 p.m. attending these meetings, this family, who were, with the exceptions of the two little children, all church members went home more interested than ever in devotional subjects. Their daily work in the field and house became little by little more neglected and laid aside. They began a series of home meetings in which Jane and Sally, their eldest daughter, were the exhorters, in which every member of the family took part in. During the progress of these meetings, the mother and Sally began to see visions, and the mother began to prophesize. Sally eventually claimed to be the one true God. The mother often saw Polly on the cross in her visions, though, and sometimes she herself felt on her own head the crown of thorns, and she felt in her side was a spear, as her Savior had done before her. The mother would sometimes predict that some dreadful calamity was about to overtake their community, their family, but she didn't know its precise nature, nor the details, but she knew it was coming, surely coming, and coming soon. She would often prepare a dinner, set a table, and wash a set of clothes, set them out by the table in an empty chair for her own son, who had never come home from the army. John is coming home, in God's own good way and time, in a mighty sign. She believed he'd be bringing something to help them in their suffering. They, including Sally, believed Sally was to be sacrificed for the sins of the world, since they believed she was the one true God. Her death was going to ransom the rest of their family and reserve a space with God. For days and nights together, they would fast, sing, preach, and pray. In these exercises, Jane, the mother, and Sally, the daughter, would lead off, Polly following, while the father and his sons would either sit silently listening or following the lead of the women, letting their vocal manifestations give way to physical manifestations as dancing and marching in procession to chase away the devil. 
Two or three weeks before Sally's death, they began to all see evidence of the devil's peculiar malignity towards them. They believed, or pretended to believe, that he was trying to break them up and destroy them, and that he must be driven away by physical prowess. They were seen at the command of Jane to rush and run violently about the yard, garden, and house, beating the air with their fists, shouting loudly enough to be heard a mile away. On Saturday, February 20th, 1869, the whole family, except Sally, were seen in Jonathan Land's field. This was the, the grandfather. Some half a mile from their house, preaching, praying, and singing, exhorting bystanders to repent, threatening damnation to anybody who denied obedience to their commands when the neighbors tried to avoid them or talk back to them. They were observed with their sleeves rolled up above their elbows, knocking dried chestnut burrs from one to another until their naked hands and arms were covered in blood. While this was going on, Sally was noticed setting apart by herself, her eyes fixed on the sun, which although near the west was still brilliant and cloudless. When she was asked, what was going on up yonder, pointing to her family, she began to speak with wild gestures, preaching, sir, from heaven's king, keeping this up rapidly for some minutes and then changing into some unintelligible action and nonsensical chanting. Shortly after this, the same evening, they were met in a narrow path by a brother of James, marching by twos towards home the mother clasping her husband's arm with both her hands in the front. Next came Sally and Polly, then the boys, and last the children. Their heads were bare, their hair disheveled, their dress disorderly, their eyes fixed and staring, their faces set steadily to the front, and their whole look wild and strange. The witness spoke. None of them answered. He moved a little to one side, still keeping close to them and addressing them, but the whole procession filed past him without a word or sign of recognition. The witness believed them to be crazy and went several miles away to retrieve Jane's father, an old man named Murphy, who testified that the next day, Sunday, he went to their house met Eli and Nimrod, who were entirely adverse to his entering until he agreed to pray first, for, they said, it is God's house and we are God's people. Gaining an entrance at last, he found the whole family had fasted for three days, eating what they claimed was hidden manna. His visit was profitless, and he went away. That evening, a neighbor and four young women went to see them. Sally was standing by the hearth, holding out a gourd of water to Eli and Nimrod, calling on them to drink and be cleansed, and that she was the one true and only God. They drank the water, and then Eli seized a pine torch, lit it, 
with his shirt drawn out over his waist and his right arm and shoulder bare, held his blazing torch up in the middle of the room. The rest of the family exclaimed, We have conquered the devil! Seeming to notice their visitors for the first time, they approached them, shouting, There are five more devils, and on the floor we will get them. And as the five guests fleed the house out of fear, the family followed them out into the yard, shouting, Out of the door they go, and into the yard we will lay them, until they had successfully chased their visitors well away from their home. That same night, the mother and Sally ordered the whole party, except for the little ones, to strip naked, themselves setting the example first, burning their clothes and shoes, and hiked the whole family some 15 or 20 yards to a cold spring, where with exhortation and prayer and song they washed and were cleansed again. Returning to the house, they put on new clothes, but they had no more shoes. Nearly all that night, a bitterly cold one, they remained up, engaged in prayer. The next day they passed the same way, eating nothing from morning until night. That night, Sally and her mother discussed, well, argued rather, about a passage they found in a scripture. The dispute arose, occasioned as the defendants told the court later, over both of them claiming to be God. The mother thought Sally was really the devil and ordered her sons and husbands to tie her. And they did. And thrust her, hands tied together in front of her, out of the door and into the cold night air. She tried to get back inside, banging and scratching at the door, And this is when James seized a bit of board, trying to push her back out and away from the door. While the mother, unable to hold the door against her, ordered Eli to shoot the devil, and he fired. The bullet hit her in the hand, and then as they described it afterwards, the devil scrambled off the doorstep. Soon, she was back again putting her bloody hands in at a hole at the top of the door when Eli was again ordered to shoot. It seems like, he explained as if he were talking about someone else completely in, instead of his own sister, like as if he, if he got in, he would have destroyed us all. I saw his eyes as big as dinner plates. And Mama saw him too. The real big, black, bald-headed old devil... Nimrod loaded the rifle with two more bullets, gave it to Eli, who said, Father, must I shoot? If nothing else will do, he said, you must shoot. And then Eli recounted, This time I pumped him right between the eyes. Sally's body laid outside the door the rest of those hours until the daylight. And then her mother, Jane, ordered the rest to carry the evil out to the log heap and burn it. And this is what they did. All taking part except for Polly, whose mind seemed to have given way that night, and to whom the whole scene seemed, as she testified later, a dream. The remains of Sally Land were discovered the next day, nothing being left but a bit of spine and skull, a rib or two, 
some portion of the shoulders and hips in the pile, and a bit of her heart that never burned. Her funeral pyre was in a public place, a few yards from the house, in full view of every passerby, a quarter mile, even less from the house, in full view of every neighbor. Even less distant was a dense wooded area with many rocky hollows and gorges, suited for concealment. Tuesday, they were arrested and made frantic efforts to retain their pile of remains, apparently regarding it as sacred. The same day, the whole of the survivors were seen busy and bustling around the old man, James, their hands and fingers in his mouth, calling out, Lord have mercy, spit it up. He submitted quietly to this behavior. That day, too, while a visitor asked what had become of Sally, Jane said, The devil's in a corner yonder. We killed him last night. The old man, who was unconcernedly stopping up a hole in the door, said, This is all the old woman's work. She's a scattered witch trickery over us. That day, Nimrod being asked why he was going barefoot in the winter and what became of his shoes, answered, Don't tempt me. I sold them to Peter for the price of two souls. They were taken to Taylorsville, Alexander County, and confined in jail, where a few nights afterwards, they all, occupying the same cell, a room grated with iron on top and at the sides, the sons killed their mother by choking her to death. Eli was questioned as to this and answered, When I got awake, she was dead. Indictments were found against James and his sons for the murder of Sally and against the sons for the murder of Jane. Owing to all the excitement from the outside in Alexander County over this incredible case, their counsels had to be removed and their trial was taken to Caldwell County. Many medical men visited them in jail and six heard the trial and testified as to their opinion of their sanity. Three were of the belief that they were insane. Two said that they were sane and one was doubtful. After a three-day trial before a jury of unusual intelligence, the examination of nearly 40 witnesses, the arguments of five lawyers for the defense and three for the state, and an able and learned charge from the judge, the prisoners were acquitted on the grounds that they were too insane to hang. The appearance of these defendants was almost idiotic. They exhibited neither joy nor remorse after the death of Sally and Jane and showed no sign of emotion throughout the trial. When told by their counsel that they were free to go, their only answer was a vacant look and a, well. A medical witness of skill swore their grade of intellect, as near as he could tell, was not above that of a child of seven years of age. They were taken under the care of their relatives. When Nora McGee, Sally Land's granddaughter, told her recount of the story, it was a bit different. 
she had been told that Sally didn't want to have anything to do with that religious organization that the family had gotten involved with. And that's why they killed her after determining that she was possessed by an evil spirit. One dark, rainy night, they came to her house and called her outside, she says. One of her brothers shot her in the hand as she was trying to get back in the house. And then they shot her in the head and she fell backwards into the yard. In the meantime, one of the brothers went into the house to get the daughter, Mary, who was two or three years old. The only thing she could remember about that night was that it was raining and the uncle gave her a big red apple. She was taken away to live with other family members. But going back to Sally's death, the family cut her up and burned her. They burned part of her in the cellar and part in the garden. The story goes that on any dark, rainy night, you could look out in the garden and see lit coals and smoke, but also that the heart would never burn. This much is authentic because Cynthia Malta, Cynthia from the old Cynthia place, told me herself, Nora continued. She said that some days after Sally was killed, she was made to take that heart and any bones that did not burn and go dig a hole and bury them. This has been Natural and Wild with Christine Grayson. This concludes this month's Octobercast podcast, Frightful and Fantastic Stories of the Dark. Make sure your jack-o'-lanterns are cut and as scary as they can be so you can scare away the restless spirits who still wander around here looking for revenge and vindication. Be careful who you let in, be safe, and see you next week at Natural and Wild. I'd like to thank my biggest supporters, as this is a listener-supported podcast. Bruce Presson, Sheila McGregor, Chris Nolan, Arnold Bloom, Yvonne Ragland, Robin Umber, and William Bishop. I'd like to thank those who have contributed to the tip jar this week. I appreciate every dollar and every smile, and I hope everybody has a great and fun weekend. Happy Halloween! Happy Halloween!